You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. In 1922, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, famed novelist and creator of Sherlock Holmes, opened his latest book with the following statement. The series of incidents set forth in this little volume represent either the most ingenious and elaborate hoax ever played upon the public, or else they constitute an event in human history which may in the future appear to be epoch-making in its character. So what was this mysterious series of incidents that could potentially change the world as we know it? It was, in fact, a series of five photographs. The photographs in question feature two young girls in what looks like a typical English country setting, surrounded by small figures that are, unmistakably, fairies. These photos would become a media sensation and the subject of heated debate, with some of the most lauded intellectuals of the early 20th century staking their reputations on them. Despite this, the mystery of the Cottingley fairy photographs would remain unsolved for another 60 years. In May of 1920, the editor of Light, a magazine focusing on spiritualism, contacted one of Britain's most famous contemporary spiritualists, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The editor had, he explained, recently heard tell of a pair of rather astounding photographs that appear to have captured the images of two young girls interacting with fairies. Excited by the prospect of proof of the existence of fairies, and at any rate not one to let a good mystery just go by, Conan Doyle set about looking for copies of the photos to see for himself. He contacted his best lead, a Miss Gardner, who told him about a photo her brother Edward happened to have in his possession. She wrote, I wish you could see a photo he has. He has gotten to touch with a family in Bradford where the little girl Elsie and her cousin Frances constantly go into the woods and play with the fairies. Some little time ago, Elsie said she wanted to photograph them and begged her father to lend his camera. For long, he refused. But at last, she managed to get the loan of it and one plate. Off she and Frances went into the woods near a waterfall. Francis ticed them, as they call it, and Elsie stood ready with the camera. Soon the three fairies appeared, and one pixie dancing in Francis's aura. Elsie snapped and hoped for the best. It was a long time before the father would develop the photo, but at last he did, and to his utter amazement, the four sweet little fairies came out beautifully.
By July, after a bit of wrangling, Conan Doyle had got himself copies of the two photographs the girls had produced. The first featured a girl of nine or ten surrounded by four tiny dancing fairies. The second showed a slightly older girl seated in front of a frolicking gnome. The photos had already been sent to Illingworth, a company specializing in photography and photographic equipment, where the chief analyst, a Mr. Harold Snelling, came to two important conclusions about the photos. The first was that each photo was the result of a single exposure, eliminating the possibility that they were the result of a double exposure, in which two images can be superimposed on one another. The second was that, quote, all the figures of the fairies moved during exposure, which was instantaneous. For Conan Doyle, this was all the proof he needed. He became thoroughly convinced that the photos captured the genuine moving images of fairies. However, Conan Doyle was aware of what the skeptics would say, so he next took the photos to the more prestigious Kodak Company, where two experts in photography evaluated the plates. They examined the plates carefully, and neither of them could find any evidence of superposition or other trick. On the other hand, they were of the opinion that, if they set to work, with all their knowledge and resources, they could produce such pictures by natural means, and therefore they would not undertake to say these were preternatural. Unwilling to merely leave it there, Conan Doyle resolved to put the photos and all the evidence before the public for examination and judgment. In December, Conan Doyle published the photos along with an essay in a special Christmas issue of The Strand magazine. In the essay, which featured the headline Fairies Photographed, Conan Doyle made the case for the photo's authenticity and said he hoped that they might open readers' material 20th century minds to the glamour and mystery that surrounded them. Naturally, the photos met with a skeptical reception, including an article in the Westminster Gazette in January of 1921 that revealed the true identities of the girls in the photos. Conan Doyle had been careful to conceal the true names of the girls and their families, but the Gazette reporter wrote, I'm afraid Sir Conan does not know Yorkshire people, particularly those of the Dales, because any attempt to hide identity immediately arouses their suspicions. The article goes on. Here is a small village called Cottingley, almost hidden in a break in the upland through which tumbles a tiny stream known as Cottingley Beck. The heroine of Sir Conan Doyle's story is Miss Elsie Wright, who resides with her parents at 31 Linwood Terrace. The little stream runs past the back of the house, and the photographs were taken not more than a hundred yards away. When Miss Wright made the acquaintance of the fairies, she was accompanied by her cousin, Frances Griffiths, who resides at Dean Road, Scarborough. Miss Wright still believes in the existence of the fairies and is looking forward to seeing them again in the coming summer. Conan Doyle answered this and other critical responses with a full-throated defense of the photo's authenticity in the form of his 1922 book, The Coming of the Fairies, which tells the entire story of the Cottingley fairy photos and the two girls who produced them and features the series of photos in its entirety.
While most readers remained skeptical, the girls in the photos remained insistent that they were genuine. When the first photos were taken in 1917, Frances Griffiths was nine years old, and Elsie Wright was 15. Frances had spent most of her early childhood in South Africa, where her father had been stationed as an officer in the British Army. When her father was called to Europe to fight in World War I, Frances and her family moved to England. Frances found herself eating rationed food in an obscure country village in northeast England, where her Yorkshire classmates teased her for her South African accent. When the school term ended in June of 1917, Frances went to stay with her cousin Elsie Wright. Like Frances, Elsie had spent most of her childhood abroad, returning to England with a pronounced Canadian accent. She was often described as a dreamer, easily distracted and possessed of a wild imagination. She did poorly in most of her classes, with the exception of art. She filled her notebooks with drawings of fairies, and as she got older, she began to produce intricate watercolors of fairies, gnomes, and other sprites. By age 14, she had left school for good and spent her days dreaming of playing with the fairies. Frances and Elsie quickly became the best of friends. After being mocked and isolated by their classmates, they retreated for the summer to the woods and to the stream near the house called Cottingley Beck, where they created a world of their own. When Frances returned from the woods one day soaking wet from having fallen into the stream, her mother demanded an explanation. Frances told her she kept going to the stream to see the fairies. Elsie came to her cousin's defense, saying she too had seen fairies there. Of course, the adults refused to believe them. Frustrated that their parents refused to listen to their stories of the fairies, Elsie and Frances hatched a plan. They asked to borrow Elsie's father's camera, which he reluctantly let them have, loading it with a single photographic plate. They returned with a photo of Frances surrounded by four fairies. The family thought nothing of it, assuming the girls were up to some trick. Not satisfied with a single photo, and one that only featured Frances, two months later, in September, the girls took a photo that showed Elsie playing with a gnome. Their family treated the photos as nothing more than a fun curiosity, and the matter rested there for several years, with a few photos sent to family and friends. That is, until someone sent a copy to Edward Gardner in 1920. Gardner was the head of the London Theosophical Society, a group that believed in the human ability to develop psychic powers and perceive supernatural beings and elemental spirits, like fairies. It was Gardner who first took the photos to Harold Snelling at Illingworth Company. He was eager to use the photos in Theosophical Society meetings as evidence of supernatural beings. When, in December of 1920, the Strand magazine asked Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to write a special essay on fairies, he got in touch with Gardner. 
And from there on in, the two agreed to follow up on the photos together. The following summer, Francis returned to visit Elsie, and Edward Gardner gave the girls a better camera on the off chance that they might produce more photographs. The result was three more prints. One featuring Francis and a leaping fairy, one showing a fairy offering a bouquet of flowers to Elsie, and the last showing a handful of fairies sunbathing in the grass. Once again, Mr. Snelling of the Illingworth Company said he could find no evidence of tampering. Gardner was convinced the photos were more genuine proof of fairies. In his excitement, he wrote to Conan Doyle that in the photo of the leaping fairy, he, quote, thought this one had bobbed hair and was altogether quite in the fashion, remarking, her dress is so up to date. But it was exactly this aspect of the photos that raised skepticism among Conan Doyle's spiritualist friends, especially Sir Oliver Lodge, who remarked that he had doubts about the fashionable Parisian coiffed fairies. Skepticism aside, the photos were a sensation, appearing in newspapers as far abroad as India, and the two girls from Cottingley found themselves to be minor celebrities. Why was there such an obsession with finding proof of fairies in the early 20th century? The rise of Romanticism in the 18th and 19th centuries led to a revival of fairy lore and the rise of fairies as a symbol of English folk heritage and the national spirit of Britain. Of course, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the Romantic idea of a national spirit went hand-in-hand hand with the rise of nationalism and imperialism. Finding evidence of fairies in England not only proved the existence of the supernatural world, but also gave credence to English folk traditions and bolstered a sense of national identity. The following passage from writer and theosophist Bishop Leadbeater, which Conan Doyle includes at length in The Coming of the Fairies, reflects that sense of national hierarchy even in the appearance of fairies. No contrast could well be more marked than that between the vivacious, rollicking orange and purple or scarlet and gold mannequins who dance among the vineyards of Sicily and the almost wistful gray and green creatures who move so much more sedately amidst the oaks and furs-covered heaths in Brittany or the golden-brown good people who haunt the hillsides of Scotland. In England, the emerald green kind is probably the commonest, and I have seen it also in the woods in France and Belgium, in faraway Massachusetts, and on the banks of the Niagara River. The vast plains of the Dakotas are inhabited by a black and white kind which I have not seen elsewhere. The California rejoices in a lovely white and gold species which also appears to be unique. In Australia, the most frequent type is a very distinctive creature of a wondrous luminous sky blue color. Down in New Zealand, their speciality is a deep blue shot with silver, while in the South Sea Islands, one meets with a silvery white variety, which coruscates with all the colors of the rainbow, like a figure of mother of pearl. In India, we find all sorts, from the delicate rose and pale green, or pale blue and primrose of the hill country, to the rich medley of gorgeously gleaming colors, almost barbaric in their intensity and profusion which is characteristic of the plains. In some parts of that marvelous country, I've seen the black and gold type, 
which is usually associated with the African desert. The Orientalist and Imperialist overtones are hard to miss. From the descriptions of Sicily's fairies as vivacious and rollicking, and India's as almost barbaric, to the obvious link between the colors of fairies and the precious commodities associated with their regions. It's no mistake that, according to Leadbeater, the fairies of Africa are black and gold, those of the South Sea Islands are the color of pearls, and even California's fairies are gold. Going by this, it appears that, even in the fairy world, human national politics invariably play a role. After 1921, public interest in the Cottingley fairy photos and the girls that produced them gradually faded. Elsie and Francis grew up, got married, and moved away. In later interviews, Elsie softened her story, saying that the fairies may not have been entirely real, but perhaps the photos captured the girls' own imaginations. In an interview with the BBC in 1971, Elsie stated, I've told you that they're photographs of figments of our imagination, and that's what I'm sticking to. In 1983, the magazine The Unexplained interviewed Elsie and Francis. It was then, some 66 years after snapping that first photo of Francis and the four dancing fairies, that they finally confessed that the photos were fakes. Elsie had copied pictures of girls dancing from the 1914 children's book Princess Mary's Gift Book. She then drew wings on them to create fairies. Cutting out the cardboard figures, the girls stuck them into the ground with hat pins. Francis posed, and Elsie snapped the photo. However, when it came to the fifth and final photo, the two women disagreed. Elsie said it was a fake like all the others, but Francis argued, saying, It was a wet Saturday afternoon and we were just mooching about with our camera, and Elsie had nothing prepared. I saw these fairies building up on the grasses and just aimed the camera and took the photograph. In a later interview, Francis said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun, and I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. Why did so many want to be taken in by two country girls with a handful of cardboard fairies? including one of the greatest mystery writers of the 20th century. One answer is that the cold, hard rationalism of modernity is a difficult thing for many to embrace. After the horrors of World War I and the 1918 influenza epidemic, the modern era's attempt to scrape away magic from the world may have left behind a kind of void, a yearning for the comfort of the old stories. Another possibility is that modern science contains voids of its own. There are things science has yet to explain, and some things that science alone may never be able to fully encompass. Perhaps Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said it best in The Coming of the Fairies when he wrote, Victorian science would have left the world hard and clean and bare, like a landscape in the moon. But this science is in truth but a little light in the darkness, and outside that limited circle of definite knowledge, 
we see the loom and shadow of gigantic and fantastic possibilities around us, throwing themselves across our consciousness in such ways that it is difficult to ignore them. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen, and please spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and spiritualism in the early 20th century, check out last season's episode titled No Ghost Need Apply. This episode was produced by me, featuring the voice talents of Jack Krause and Lenny Scovel, and original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources for each episode, including links to the Cottingly Fairy photos themselves, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.